listeners, and welcome once again to Views from the Crow's Nest. This podcast is an in-house production of Fisher Jordan, which is a specialized management consulting firm based in New York, helping companies leverage data analytics and technology solutions to improve strategic outcomes. You can find out more about Fisher Jordan, including our approach to delivering client value, career opportunities, and our work within our communities online at fisherjordan.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R, Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N.com. My name is Nathan Johnson. I'm a member of the Fisher Jordan team and what passes for a host of this podcast. If you'd prefer, or if you're not into the whole brevity thing, you can call me the conversation starter. Either way, you're stuck with me. In this episode, we'll sit down with Fisher Jordan senior analyst Austin LaRoche for a slightly different topic from our usual. This time, we'll talk about the current state of food insecurity in the U.S., post-COVID especially, and some ins and outs of various operations to combat that perennial issue. We'll look at some questions like how you can ensure the largest amount of your donations are going directly to people in need when giving to nonprofit organizations. And we'll wrap up with an inside look at some specific ways that Fisher Jordan is getting involved to try to address the problem of food insecurity in the communities where we operate. That's the gist. Now let's head on up to the crow's nest and see what we can see. All right. Well, Austin LaRoche, uh, welcome to Views from the Crow's Nest. It's great to have you back on. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, surprised you invited me back on after the last one. Huh? I guess uh, you must like something I said. <laughs> Indeed, it's, it's my pleasure. Um, and yeah, you were you were on with uh, the group conversation, so I get, I'm glad I get to talk to you a little bit one-on-one here today um, about uh, some of your research into uh, food insecurity, particularly in the United States. Um, and uh, bef- before we kind of launch into the, the broader conversation, maybe shed a little bit of light on why we're going to be talking about that today. Uh, obviously, it's an ongoing conversation in other spheres. Uh, lots of other people are talking about this other than just here on this podcast. So kind of in summary, why why are we talking about that as a uh, consulting firm here today? It's an important and pressing issue in the uh, U.S., especially in light of uh, COVID and while it's starting to unwind at the time of this recording, that doesn't mean the problem's gone away. So I've been um, spearheading Fisher Jordan's new project, um, focusing in on hunger, actually, um, combating hunger or uh, food inequality, both you know here at home in the U.S. and um, internationally as well. I mean, I'm pretty excited to um, you know tell you more about this later, but for now, I guess as a teaser, just know that it's called the. Uh, FAIR, standing for uh, Food Availability Improvement Resource. And um, basically, it's a way to leverage the skills and expertise that we develop in-house and, um, you know, use it to help our neighbors. So bringing more of an analytical insight to uh, the problem of food inequality as a way to kind of help our communities um, in kind of the same way that we do for our clients is kind of what I'm hearing you say. Right. I mean, if there's a way to do it, there's a way to do it efficiently. And, um, you know, that's what we're good at. Excellent. I love it. Well, I'm excited to talk about that. So let's let's talk background a little bit. As I said earlier, like obviously this is this is not a new problem. It's been going on for a while. Um, but uh, what can you tell us about uh, kind of the circumstances we're dealing with? How many people are impacted by hunger and food inequality in the U.S. today? So um, I'm about to just rattle off a couple of stats. So stop me if uh, you ever get lost in these numbers here. 
So in the U.S. alone, um, in 2020, I found a report stating that more than 35 million people faced hunger in the United States. That's, I mean, um, this is about to switch units on us, but pretty much it's one in 10 households in the United States. That means, you know, you pick out any random neighborhood, pick out 10 houses in that neighborhood, at least one in 10 is going to, or probably one out of those 10 is going to have some sort of food insecurity issue. Now, distribution of households that face food insecurity actually does vary a bit by uh, whether you're located in a rural area or an urban area. Um, rural areas, there are fewer resources available to them as compared to households in urban areas. So you're going to see that households in rural areas actually experience about 20% or 20% more likely um, to see uh, food insecurity overall. Um, which 12.1% of households there or in rural areas facing food insecurity as compared to 10.3 looking at um, urban areas alone. Hmm. If you want to look at it through the lens of uh, different ages, um, of that 35 million uh, people that I quoted earlier, hungry children actually comprise about a third of that at around 10 million, hmm. while at the other end of the spectrum, now, 7.3 million adults were over the age of 60 were found to be food insecure. Mm. So, I mean, think about that. Over half of these individuals facing hunger in the United States, of the 35 million, more than half are in relatively vulnerable and uh, sensitive groups, you know? I'd, I'd love to know more about how COVID has impacted this whole situation. I, you, you mentioned uh, the, the overall numbers for 2020, but what was COVID's impact did it impact it in a more noticeable way uh, that you might be able to talk about? The thing with COVID, it's actually pretty dramatically uh, increased the risk of uh, food insecurity in the uh, U.S. and around the world. Um, from that 35 million uh, figure I quoted a little bit ago, Feeding America, which is uh, one of the uh, largest nonprofit organizations in the U.S., combating uh, food insecurity projects that about 42 million people will be food insecure in 2021. It's a 20% uptick as compared to uh, 2020, right? A big reason for that has actually been the whole shutdown, right? Now, as I'm sure you can imagine, um, poverty and food insecurity are often very highly correlated, right? The population that COVID has impacted rather severely is typically those in jobs like the service industry, you know, cashiers at your McDonald's, waiters, waitresses, what have you, right? Now, those are all individuals um, that need to be, you know, present at the place of business. Now, restaurants are closed, all of a sudden, all of these individuals are out of work. And you tie that with this one stat I was reading about how less than 40% of Americans are unable to come up with just $500 in cash in the event of an emergency without taking a loan or selling a possession. And I mean, we've already started seeing this um, the, this uptick in um, households or individuals that will or are facing food insecurity when we just look at the uh, number of people going to food pantries this year, right? Food banks have experienced or seeing our approximately 55% more individuals um, than last year. And kind of partner to that, if you saw an increase in uh, the overall numbers, like the, if you saw an increase in need, 
from COVID in the food insecurity situation? Did you see a corresponding increase in response or uh, was the uh, was the need sort of outmatching the response from the community, government, individuals? What's kind of the, the shape of that? We've actually also seen the uh, generosity of um, private contributions uh, increase this year as well. Now in um, 2020, I found a report citing that um, food banks across the country have seen an average increase in the amount uh, in the private donations of uh, 12.1% as compared to 2019. I mean, America is already fairly well known for the, uh, for the poor proportion of uh, money going to charity. And um, you know, seeing it increase over the past year is uh, pretty heartening. Beyond even private citizens, I mean, the government's also been playing a huge role. I mean, everyone's heard about the uh, the various uh, stimulus acts or bills that have been um, been passed. And now as a part of um, all of these packages, one thing that the uh, USDA received and turned around and uh, issued was uh, $2 billion monthly in emergency SNAP benefits over the uh, duration of the pandemic and provided up until up. I want to say about $6 billion in food to food banks themselves. And um, more recently, I believe there was an act uh, in Congress, the American Rescue Plan Act, that's um, further increasing or extending funding for these kinds of programs. Um, I think overall providing about 15% um, more for food stamp beneficiaries, as well as uh, earmarking about $900 million to provide a fresh produce for women, infants, and children. So, I mean, it's a community effort, but I feel like um, everyone's trying to do their part. I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit more about the sort of the ripple effects of food insecurity. Obviously, there's the immediate consequence of it is you just got, you've literally got people going hungry. Um, But what are some of the more macro consequences of it that people maybe wouldn't associate with uh, this problem of food insecurity but that has its roots in it nonetheless. Yeah, so I mean, the issue of food insecurity is pretty pervasive. I mean, it's one of our most fundamental needs, right? Um, a big one that's, uh, that might be obvious to some, but um, not so to others, healthcare. In 2016, a study found that nearly $53 billion in healthcare costs were associated with food insecurity among Americans. Think about it. You have reduced access to nutritious foods, um, which typically also highly correlate with poverty. Food insecure individuals may also elect to skip medication refills, doctor appointments, and ultimately just not have the resources, whether financially or time or emotionally, to really effectively manage their health. Imagine if you're diabetic and you have to you have to decide between do I buy my insulin this month or should I eat for the next week? Or with the doctor's appointment, I mean, is it really worth going to the doctor for hypertension, even though down the line, I mean, I'll be at greater risk for uh, more significant heart issues, right? It's not affecting me today, so I can just, maybe I should skip this appointment. Um, beyond the immediate uh, issues with that individuals might face with um, healthcare. Um, down the line, food insecurity could also represent a potential workforce issue. Individuals who experience hunger as children have been found to, well, just honestly, just not be as well prepared, whether physically, mentally, emotionally, 
socially um, to perform effectively in the contemporary workforce. And really down the line, what that means is that you, the workforce pool or the pool of individuals to pull from is going to ultimately be less competitive, um, have lower levels of educational attainment, and um, just really just constrain human capital. So it's an important problem that everyone really, I think, should face. Well, that's some good background on the problem overall. Uh, and now I'd like us to, to shift and, and go into some more detail on what's being done to combat the problem. You, you mentioned a little bit uh, earlier when you were just talking about 2020, just the different kinds of responses that we're seeing, um, whether it be private citizens or, or uh, government interventions, um, just as a, as a kind of a broad overview. Love to do a little bit more of a detailed view of the different kinds of organizations involved uh, in helping the hungry. Um, but I'd also like to hear a little bit more about the distinction between something like a food bank and a food pantry and whether the differences are just like within their distribution methods or if they go further than that. Um, so it's a pretty broad question, but uh, feel free to address it uh, as you see fit. When you look at the organizations combating this kind of issue, I mean, it's pretty much across the board, right? You're going to have everything from government at all levels, from your town to your state to the federal government. Um, you know, issuing things like food stamps, or I mentioned the USDA issuing some uh, additional like uh, food or uh, funding to food banks. I mean, so they're definitely um, helping here. Then you have things like private citizens who are just, you know, maybe they're just cooking a meal for the neighbor um, who they know they're landed on some hard times, right? And then um, you have things like uh, dedicated nonprofits, like uh, food banks, food pantries, Given uh, our my, I guess, closer involvement with food banks and food pantries, I think uh, that's kind of where I wanted to focus a bit more on. Actually, food banks and food pantries, while they're uh, very similar there, you did note that uh, there is a distinction between the two. They are different with their distribution methods, but it's uh, slightly more uh, nuanced. Food banks are pretty much exactly a, a bank for food. Um, as opposed to cash, right? Now, food pantries, you can think of as their customers for the most part. They'll have a regional food bank in their area that they work with to either uh, purchase or receive uh, donations or disbursements from. The primary difference between the two of these guys is usually scale. Food banks are typically community organizations that, I mean, regardless of scale, rely on donations and volunteers. If we want to take it from the, uh, from the very top, from the uh, producer up until when I, as an individual going to a food pantry, get the food. You can think of the uh, food distribution process as having four steps. Uh, this is gonna be very broad and I'd be generalizing a fair bit, but this should be barely accurate. The four steps in the food distribution process are secure the food, ship and store the food, distribution, and then um, ultimately support. Now, starting from the first step there, securing. Food banks are going to typically secure food from a variety of sources, whether from, you know, the food manufacturers, like factories, um, farmers um, who grow the food and maybe didn't sell all their produce, as well as uh, government agencies and other organizations, as well as, uh, you know, just individual donations. I mean, I'm pretty sure everyone's seen a canned food drive occurring, you know, whether at school or at a post office or wherever, right? 
depending on the size of the organization, this could look pretty different. Um, I mean, it can mean anything from, you know, purchasing um, truckloads of food um, down to just, you know, receiving one can from the food drive, you know. Once the food is received, one of the most laborious tasks here is actually uh, sorting and uh, QCing or quality checking the food that they get. This is pretty time and labor intensive and uh, can often cause some level of a strain for a smaller organization who might not, who might not have the uh, manpower to sort everything all at once, right? And when you think about something like a canned food drive, I mean, you're going to have a whole variety of items coming in that all need to get sorted and, and checked to ensure that people can actually um, eat it. I've heard scare stories about individuals just donating like, uh, you know, opened cans. I've seen stories about people throwing clothes into um, these like food drive boxes. That said, once, uh, once all the goods are sorted, um, storage is yet another uh, hurdle for uh, smaller organizations as well as larger ones. But the reason why you see canned food drives so often is because of the shelf lines, right? Fresh produce and fresh veggies are typically both perishable and expensive to both buy and keep. So really with fresh produce and vegetables, um, only a limited quantity can be kept on hand at a time. Whereas, you know, with non-perishables, you, you don't need to worry about the refrigeration aspect as much. So, you know, that's typically why um, you're going to see the canned food drives more. Distributing the food can actually take a lot of different forms, depending on um, both what the local community requires, as well as um, what the organization has available, right? Pre-pandemic, um, a lot of organizations that we worked with had typically provided food for clients, kind of like, uh, you know, in a grocery store, right? People would just go in, they would do their shopping and, um, and uh, leave. I mean, it was, it was pretty much a grocery store, except all the goods were free. Other pantries, uh, one model that was used was uh, to distribute uh, pre-filled bags of food at their location or um, via delivery um, it, for individuals that weren't able to actually go to the location. And um, others actually provided cooked meals as well. During the pandemic, I should have mentioned this earlier and when you asked about how uh, things have changed, but during the pandemic, actually, one thing that food pantries have started or um, have arisen as a result of the adaptation to, you know, social distancing measures and, you know, has actually been car side pickup of food, pretty similar to the distributing of pre-filled bags of food that was occurring pre-pandemic. But one critical aspect that this method of distribution um, lacks is actually the uh, client choice. What I mean by that is with the grocery store model, people are only going to pick out what they're actually going to eat, right? Mostly. With um, pre-filled bags, the biggest or a big disadvantage is the fact that you're not allowing individuals to make that sort of uh, choice. So really what it does is really um, it heightens the risk of uh, wastage, you know. It's something to obviously avoid here. So I'm curious, what can, what can somebody do to help? Um, what can an individual do uh, to get involved with um, work against food insecurity? Like how do people find a charity that actually helps people? Because um, I know that there's there's some hesitancy when when you're giving in any sort of way to a charitable foundation. Um, how do you ensure that um, 
what you're giving, uh, particularly with when it comes to money, is actually going to people that need it? Typically, what these organizations need are um, people, supplies, and cash. Now, I know that's not a unique list, but facts are facts, right? Willing volunteers. Now, um, these guys are actually critical to the continued operation of um, any food pantry, really. They're the ones, you know, performing the bulk of the work, running food drives, working in the warehouses, distributing the food. Um, you know, so if you can find the time, uh, you know, maybe every week, every month, or even just like a one-off, you know, they'd welcome you with uh, open arms there, right? If you're more inclined to donate supplies, any donations of um, non-perishables are uh, generally accepted, so long as, you know, they're not in a terrible condition. This might be a bit of a reach, but, you know, if you're familiar or you work with someone uh, that knows someone at, who runs a grocery store or any, you know, any store really that uh, works with food, it could be really uh, helpful to put them in touch with the pantry as well. Since a lot of grocery stores partner with these organizations, um, a lot of cafes partner with food pantries, um, you know, donating the, uh, the bread that was unsold that day. That all said, while a lot of organizations are um, short on fresh produce, storage of that fresh produce is usually an issue, unless you can donate a, a case of fresh food or something along those, or, you know, just a larger volume of fresh food, it might be best to uh, try to hold off on donating those. Um, it creates a, a bit of an issue for the pantry in the sense that, you know, they don't want to waste the food. But, you know, if they only distribute once a week or twice a week, then, you know, where do they keep it? Or um, if not enough is donated, who gets it? How, how do you decide? It, it's, it just creates a, a bit of a quandary for them here. Final item here, cash. Donating cash can often feel like a, I'm just throwing money at a problem or at a black box. And, um, you know, I did, I did my part and um, I just wait for the problem to go away. Now, breaking apart that black box, that's, um, that's a big deal for me, at least. Um, ideally, you know, I'd want my money to go, or I'd want to know that my money is going to an organization where the bulk of the uh, donation is going to actually be helping those in need. As a discerning individual, how do I find a reputable organization to donate to and or work with, right? Two ways come to mind there, and um, I think both are pretty equally valid. All 501c3 organizations, um, which is the uh, IRS designation for a nonprofit organization, are required to release their uh, financials every year to the public. And um, the data is available right on the uh, IRS website. It's called the uh, Form 990, and it's pretty much a nonprofit tax return. You can see where and how they're using their money. So then from there, you can um, perform your own analysis, see you know, whether their overhead expenses are um, ridiculously high, um, or you can see how much of the money that came in went to those actually in need or helping those in need. Um, so you can get a really good sense of how, the, how organizations are using their money. If that sounds like a little bit too much work, um, there are a lot of great websites out there that uh, do that kind of analysis for you already and um, assign like rankings, right? Some that um, I've seen in the past include like uh, guidestar.com, uh, Charity Navigator, Charity Watch, GiveWell. 
Um, all of these sites, um, what they do is they analyze each charity's um, financials based off of that Form 990, as well as some of the work they've done, and um, can help you find the charities that help save and improve the um, you know, most lives per dollar. At the end of the day, what's really important is that you, you contribute something. I'll definitely make sure to include links to the organizations that you mentioned in the description. People will be able to go and, and check that out for themselves if they'd like. Let's wrap it up by talking a little bit about the FAIR program or the FAIR initiative that you mentioned at the beginning. Shed a little bit of light on uh, the details of that, maybe a little bit more about how somebody uh, who would be interested in partnering with Fisher Jordan could go about doing that. We've been working with uh, food pantries across the nation, as well as in uh, India, Israel, to provide food for those in need. The initiative is called FAIR, uh, as you noted which stands for um, Food Availability Improvement Resource. Helping those in need is and um, has been a core value of you know, our firm. And given the impact of the pandemic, that's when we really decided, you know, we have all of these skills and expertise um, within the firm itself. And you know, how can we use it to um, help our community? Over the uh, past uh, year or so, we've actually managed to partner with over a dozen organizations. And really what that means is we've donated over 50 tons of food over the past year. Starting out with this initiative, what we wanted to do was really maximize the impact of every dollar we uh, spent. We took a look at the Form 990s ourselves, and we tried to find organizations that were mostly or ideally fully volunteer-run with uh, low overhead. And you know, we wanted to see, or we wanted to see the majority of their revenue, so like around 90% or more, going to actually helping their community. It was a learning process there, but ultimately, those were the uh, filters that we landed on. After we shortlisted these organizations, uh, we got in touch with them and um, we worked with them and we tried to identify with them um, what needs their community had or their client base had that were going unfulfilled. But we didn't want to donate you know, a food item that the local community either had in excess or didn't need or want. We asked the, the people running these um, pantries, you know, what, is there a shortage of milk? Um, what, what, you know, what are your clients, um, what would they like to have? So with that shopping list in hand, we then either um, leveraged the pantry's local connections or we started um, digging around and sourcing vendors ourselves. We've worked with everyone from grocery stores to food distributors that would be able to supply these items requested at a reasonable cost, right? From there, we would just play the middleman here and uh, let the uh, pantry and the uh, vendor there coordinate for the uh, delivery or pickup of the items there. That process can seem slightly more time-consuming and uh, laborious than just donating money, but we wanted to make sure that the process was going to be in the most effective and efficient way as possible and really know that, you know, the work we're putting in means that someone can go to bed a little happier that night, you know? It seems like it's been working pretty well. And uh, if by chance, you know, you know of or you work at or run a food pantry or food bank and um, this all sounds interesting to you and want and you'd like to learn more or partner with us potentially um or you know if you're just anyone you want to learn more really 
projects. Um, a lot more information can be found on the uh, on our website. That's going to be at fisherjordan.com slash communities. Once again, we'll be uh, providing links in the description for people who are interested in learning more about this. And um, yeah, like you said, even if it, even if you're just curious and, and just want to know more, then uh, finding more of that information on the website it's a good plan but there's also opportunity to um to partner with fisher jordan in this work if you are a food pantry or food bank and are interested in getting involved but austin thanks for being on here today and for uh for your work here and uh it's exciting to learn more about this space and to have more opportunity to talk about what fisher jordan's doing in it so thanks for being here Hey, thank you for having me, man. Uh, it's been my honor. Thanks again for listening here on Views from the Crow's Nest. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you shared it with a friend or colleague. Writing a review or leaving a rating on whichever podcast app you use also helps this podcast become more discoverable to new listeners. As a reminder, you can always find and subscribe to Views from the Crow's Nest on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and more. And of course, you can always access it directly via podcast.fisherjordan.com. Finally, if you have any comments or questions on today's episode, or even if you have a suggested topic for our next View from the Crow's Nest, feel free to send us an email, engage at fisherjordan.com. And we will see you from the Crow's Nest. Thank you.